Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Shabbat Shalom. So let's get fuller context here. In Song of Songs, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, it says, How beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilad. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep, which have come up from their watering place, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost her young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is beautiful. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Now, in the last lesson, we tried to highlight the the presence of the twins in pairs in the passage so that you could identify that pattern. But the what, what's preceding here, your hair is like a flock of goats, is that your eyes, you got two eyes, one, two. I don't know if that was from Sesame Street or where, uh, but we have two eyes and it says they're like doves behind your veil, right? So there's a, there's a veil involved here. There's hair involved here. And the hair is matching the beauty of the eyes behind the veil. Then it goes on and it, it talks about different uh, other pairs of things like the, the sheep and the goats or the twins of the sheep or the lips. You have two lips. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. The slice of pomegranate. If you've ever been to Israel, you've seen in the storefronts you know, where they've halved the pomegranates to show you the beauty of what's inside. So you'll come in and buy some of their pomegranate juice. And he says, your lips are like a scarlet thread. If you've done workbook four of the creation gospel, the scarlet harlot and the crimson thread, then that rings a bell because now you're seeing that scarlet thread of redemption. And as you're reading through the passage, it, it begins to dawn on you. Oh, I believe he's talking about Israel right here. I believe he's talking about his people right here. This is his darling. So let's proceed here with the veil, because we know if if we've got the veil, then the hair is going to go underneath the veil. So here's the word play. You've got sema, which means veil in Hebrew. And it helps us to understand what is the role of a veil? Well, it means to restrain or to hold together to restrain or to hold together. So as we look at the meaning of it, if your eyes are like dove's eyes behind your veil, remember that the dove is the one who flew and found the olive branch to bring back to Noah. She brought back what is pretty much a universal symbol of peace, but also um, tradition tells us that she uh, she was able to fly all the way into the Garden of Eden to get that olive branch to take back to Noah as a sign of the resurrection. You know, the the resurrection being human beings restored so that they could once again enter the Garden of Eden. Entering the Garden of Eden to fully engage it is going to be a matter of resurrection from the dead. 
And of course, this is where King Messiah's palace is thought to be located. It's called Kansipur, or the bird nest. And we hear Yeshua saying things like, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. So how can the upper Jerusalem and the lower ever be married, remarried again, fused back together as it was you know, meant in the beginning? We know that when sin entered the world, that the, the garden retreated a little bit, it, it pulled up a little bit away from the natural earth. But this is the idea of looking at the, the dove's eyes. Of course, it's going to, sometimes it'll represent Messiah himself. Sometimes it will represent the children of Israel. So the dove's eyes, the dove's eyes, there's a faithfulness there. There's a loyalty there. Remember, doves tend to mate for life. So when we say the, the definition of tzema, or the veil means to restrain or to hold together, we get the idea that if this is representing Israel in the pattern, then this is an Israel that's beautiful because she is exercising restraint and she is being held together. And this is one of the prayers that Yeshua had for his people, that those who followed him would be one, that they would hold together, that they would gather together. And they, they did up until a certain point. Also, the restraint. How are we restrained? We're restrained by obeying the commandments. It restrains us from evil behavior, but it also, it motivates us to do the good things. You know, we the, you're talking about the, the twin breasts in the passage. Well, those are thought possibly to allude to the two tablets of the Torah. Some of those commandments are positive, you shalls, and then some of them are going to be the negative, thou shalt not. But they restrain us. And at the same time, they restrain us from deathly destructive behavior. They also hold us together as a people. So that the sama, the veil, it's going to be what holds together the hair, the woman's hair in this particular case. That sama is particularly a woman's veil, which is very consistent with the idea that Israel is in some places is referred to as a woman. Book of Proverbs or Mishlei, which is parables. The Holy Spirit is personified as a woman. The bride Israel personified as a woman. And so it, it helps us to get different viewpoints. And some prophecies were seen as sons of Israel. And some prophecies we are the daughter Israel. We're supposed to draw out of that pattern, not to bring it strictly down into the natural world and, and you know, try to artificially say it's male or female. You can't read the scriptures and do that. You you have to be willing to flex and accept an example from either side. So right here, it's obviously the, the beauty here is going to be associated with the beauty of a woman, and it's going to restrain or hold her hair together. Now, in ancient times, you know, it was probably a fabric, a piece of cloth that restrained her hair as history marched on especially as cultures marched on. It may have been hair clips, particular type of hair clips, a headband. There's all sorts of things in the modern world, especially if you look into Orthodox Judaism, there's a whole range of, of things to hold a woman's hair. And it, this is not so different if, if we want to do a direct comparison to the male, because it, it'll be a it'll probably be a week or two before we can get more 
specifically into the letter to the Corinthians, uh, particularly to what he's saying to the Corinthian women about praying or prophesying with something on their heads. And, and he does make a passing comment to the men about wearing something on their heads. And he's, you know, in a nutshell, he's saying, men don't have a female head cover on your head. The, the Corinthians were pretty wild bunch. Apparently, <laughs> they had some issues. And so he's reminding the Corinthian men, don't try to look like a woman in in public worship. I mean, you shouldn't be trying to look like her at any time, but particularly when you're praying or prophesying, he he suggests that women wear something on their heads, but for men not to wear what a woman wears, because that Greek word means something that's that's flowing down from, that's hanging down from. And a male head cover at that time was not the same as a woman's. And it shouldn't be in modern times, either. These things should be distinctly male or female, especially in worship. And so Paul is not telling men not to wear anything on their heads. That would have been kind of silly because you couldn't even step foot in the temple to serve without your head covered. You needed the male cover. You needed the turban, I think is the way it's often translated. But the the priests in the Torah, they were commanded not necessarily to have cut hair, Although they did, if you look into the Jewish sources, it'll tell you about how often the priests and Levites had their hair cut when they served. The more literal meaning of the commandment to the priest is don't have wild hair when you come in to serve. Don't have wild hair or unkempt hair. Be well-groomed when you go into the temple. And that's that's still a great pattern for us today. If we're going to gather together and worship, there's no reason looking like, you know, we just got through scrubbing the floor with Cinderella. It's, there, there's no reason for us to look like we, we just, you know, came out of the playground. If we're going to gather together to worship and to pray together to worship the Holy One, then we shouldn't look unkempt. We should look like we have ourselves together. We should look like we have been restrained. We, we can run a brush across our hair or a comb, assuming we still have some. But the, the priests could not have unkempt hair to cut their hair or to take care of their hair when they were serving in the temple. This was a matter of restraint. Don't just go in there looking like a wild man. And Paul is passing this on. The assumption is the men would understand this. They were not to enter into the assembly with wild unkempt hair. And so he's, this is not identical when he's directing the instructions to the ladies. It's not identical to the men, but it's very similar because again, um, a veil in Hebrew, it means to restrain or to hold together. In other words, don't act wild in the assembly. And, you know, if I don't, was it the Corinthians? He also addressed where you had people just talking all over one another, just stepping all over one another, trying to, to prophesy or give a word or whatever. And he says, don't be like that. You know, wait, wait till the, the one in front of you gets done. Don't be wild. Don't be unrestrained. Everything should be done decently and in order. If it's a message from the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's not going to forget it. If you wait five minutes, for the person who's doing something right now to complete that. Of course, as you get older, as you get our age, sometimes you, you need to talk over somebody because you really will forget what you were trying to remember to say. But the Holy Spirit is not forgetful. And that's something to remember in, in the assembly. Two sets of instructions there. And like I say, we're not going to completely unpack that over the next 
well, today or maybe even next week, but we will. We will get to it because I want to explain to you this statement that I'm about to make right here. I want to unpack that for you so you can understand and think about it and soak in it before we get to it. Because as you're reading that message to the Corinthians, so often we try to make it harder than it is. And there's no reason to make it harder than it is because Paul is really clear about what he's saying. In fact, he goes overboard in saying what he's saying so that we won't mistake what he's saying for something that he isn't saying. So at the end of the day, he's saying that righteous women in the assembly who are praying or prophesying publicly, they are like a prophecy. They are like a parable of mankind's restored glory and authority in the creation. But the men are the prophecy in the parable, the symbol of Adonai's authority over man and the creation. Those two work together in the assembly. And I, I do want you to understand that. So we will get to it, but we're going to do some exploring first so that when we do get there, I think that's going to make a little bit more sense. But he's he's not, he goes to great pains to show you that he's not talking about a hierarchy. In fact, he says, don't think this is the lesson on hierarchies because, you know, even if I say that the woman was created for the man, then I have to say that the man comes out of the woman. And so what I want you to remember is everything is from Elohim. Everything is from Elohim. It's not about a hierarchy. This lesson is not about a hierarchy. It's about helping you to understand individually as males and females what you're prophesying. And so for the females, he's using the context of the head cover as your privilege to prophesy that mankind will have his glory and authority restored in the creation with King Messiah. But for men, your unique, your unique parable and prophecy is going to be about a nice authority over man and creation. These two things will be restored. And even though Adonai never lost his authority, he allowed the, the creation and mankind to go a certain way. So let's get into what the scripture says about hair. What's the symbolism? We need to know this because it's, it's going to help us to decode that particular passage where Paul's instructing the Corinthians about hair in these. Uh, it's going to help us understand things that Yeshua says about the hairs of our head. And then, like I said, we want to get into the actions of these two women who bring alabaster vials of perfume, and they're both going to wash Yeshua's feet with their hair. I want to know why. Why would there, why is such an expression of intimacy? So here we go. Here, here's for your glossary. And the symbol is going to be hair. And we're going to have more or less three definitions in terms of symbolization. What does it represent? The simple answer is going to be hair is glory. And Paul even mentions that to the Corinthians, that a woman's hair is her glory. And so her glory needs to be restrained. How is it restrained? It's restrained according to the Torah. Remember, she's beautiful behind the veil. She's beautiful behind the Torah. She's beautiful in obedience. Another example of hair as glory you can find in the book of Job and you know Job thought he was smart and then he encounters the one who created him and you know Job is asked specifically about the horse 
And he says that the horse's neck is clothed in glory. It is clothed in glory. What do we know about horse's neck? That's where his long hair is. The long hair of a horse is his mane on his neck. And so his glory is on his neck. And that's that's the simplest explanation. How do we know it's glory? Other than, you know, that's pretty specific. But as we go into the Torah, we can see clear indications. When a leper has to go through this seven-day process of cleansing, if he's been healed uh, from leprosy, then he has to be shaved. He has to remove all his glory. He has to be humbled. Because probably the reason that he was stricken with salat is the Hebrew word and became a Metzora, which is a leper, is because of gossip. That's one of the big things. Pride is one of the big things. Remember Naaman, who got healed of leprosy. He was a pretty proud guy, but he had to humble himself and go immerse seven times in the Yarden River to be humbled. If a Nazarite is completing a vow, which often they would do if they felt like they needed to restrain themselves in some area, they would forego drinking alcohol, grape products, wine products. So at the end of that, you know, this this vow that they've taken upon themselves, then all the hair is shaved and then it's sacrificed. And so there's a self-disciplinary aspect to the Nazarite sacrificing his hair, uh, humbling himself to take on this vow. There is basically a divine humbling of the leper who is then going to have to remove his hair. And then we we go back to the woman's hair. Why is her hair covered when she prays or prophesies? There's a certain humility, but remember it's because of the angels, because of the principalities and powers. And that's especially important outside the land of Israel, outside of the temple, because we know the Holy One himself supervises Israel in the land of Israel. Once you go into the exile, once you go outside of the land, then you're entering into the territory of the principalities and powers that he has set over those 70 symbolic nations. And so we're going to take a look at Deborah as an example of how an obedient woman like Deborah or Yael, um, those principalities and powers who have been set over those nations, over those territories of the nations, even though typically they really couldn't care less whether your hair is covered or not. Their their mission is a little bit different from ours. They can actually uh, have their, in their courses, in the pathway of their responsibilities. If Adonai himself becomes involved in the case, then their authority is overridden. And in Deborah's case, they can actually be commanded to come to her rescue, come to her help. And that's a beautiful pattern. In fact, part of that pattern there with Deborah and Yael, it's going to help us to decode these two alabaster women and why praying and prophesying would be two particular things that Paul would point out are really a woman should have her head covered if she's going to do those two things in public. Um, Because it's it's a way of bringing divine help to bear onto her prayer. If, if she's praying for a breakthrough, and we can use Daniel there as an example, sometimes there are obstructions in place because of the principalities and powers who are doing their jobs. And there, there has to come an override. There has to come a veto from the throne. And 
this hair cover is part of that process. Right? We'll, we'll look at that. But also, hair is a divine sign of either life or death. And that goes back to the leper, to the mezzorah. If you see a certain color of hair, if there's a black hair, there's life. Okay, it's okay. But if you see a certain color of hair, like this kind of translucent white, that's a bad sign. Death. Death is around the corner. That's a dead hair. It's it's saying to the priest, uh-oh, this person is a dead person walking. And that's why we're going to connect this to one of the alabaster women who does her hair foot washing in the home of Shimon the leper. Shimon the leper. And so that, that hair is going to be a consistent symbol there to help people understand and decode. Okay, just as this Shimon the leper was a dead man walking and Yeshua healed him, what is this woman prophesying by washing Yeshua's feet with her hair? And then finally, for your glossary, hair is a symbol of many, lots of, or of counting because of the great number. If there's a lot of things, then they're counted. And then that hair is the symbol. Uh, <laughs> you know, if, if you've got a lot of hair, and, you know, especially you ladies, you know how hard it can be, you know, to keep your hair well-groomed and to clean up after yourself if you've got long hair. Because if you brush your hair, it just seems like, you know, there. every time you brush, more hair comes out. And I thought, you know, I thought of this right here where Yeshua is saying, uh, where is this? This is Matthew 10, 30. He says, but even the hairs of your head are all counted. And Luke 12, 7, he says, but even the hairs of your head are all counted. Do not fear. You are more valuable than a great number of sparrows. So I've often, you know, wondered like, okay, I'm brushing my hair. And I just want to ask the father, like, how many now? Brush, brush. How many now? <laughs> he knows that. And that's incredible. For every human being on the face of the earth, in any given second, he can tell you exactly how many hairs are on your head, even if you just got through running the brush through it. That's incredible. And he's saying in Luke 7, he clarifies, he says, the reason he counts your hair, and counting can be an act of endearment, by the way. Just like the sheep coming up from the washing, typically that would be a time when they're going to count their sheep, not to go to sleep, but because the sheep are dear, they're precious. They don't want to lose some. Sometimes a census is a bad thing, but sometimes it's a good thing. It's a it's an action of endearment. You know, if you've ever collected something, if you've collected coins or sets of something, you you might sit there and count them because each one of them is valuable to you. And Yeshua says, "You are more valuable than a great number of sparrows." He cares about the sparrows, but he's using the hairs of the head as an example of how endearing it is for the to count the number of your head. The hair, beautiful statement of affection. So the, the symbolism here of counting of the hairs representing something in a great number, and then the counting of it, we get from our are reading here, your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep, which have come up from their watering place. And, and we'll get more into that particular verse right there later. But for now, just kind of file away, you know, like I said, the sheep coming up from their watering, um, from their washing, 
that this is the time the shepherd would want to count them because they each of those sheep souls is dear to him. Well, the great shepherd of the sheep, he brought the sheep, the flock of Israel up from the washing of the Reed Sea when they were brought out of Egypt. And, you know, we, we have the different countings. That's why uh, um, a leader couldn't just go out and do a census on his own because he might do it from the wrong motivation. He had to wait until he was told by the Holy One to do the census so that it would be um, for the proper purpose. So that, that endearing quality we can see goes back to the time of the Passover, time of the Passover. And that's going to be something that holds these two stories together. The two alabaster women, Passover is going to be something that holds the two stories together. When we would realize that Israel had come up from this reed sea, the flock had come up from their washing to be counted. Uh, another example of what um, the, the hair is a symbol of many or counting. This is from Psalm 40, 12. The psalmist says, for troubles surround me, too many to count. My sins pile up so high, I can't see my way out. They outnumber the hairs on my head. I have lost all courage. Okay, now this is a lot of sins. Unless whoever's writing it is maybe bald or something. Uh, the implication here, remember, hair represents a great number, a number difficult to count. And so in this case, these are not, this is not a counting of endearment. This is a counting of despair. I have so many sins, there are more than the hair on my head, and I'm losing courage because of it. And so that helps us to think, oh man, think of all the troubles and the sins that we personally loaded upon Yeshua. And then multiply that times the numbers of all the people in the world. Yeshua took all of this. He took, you know, you talk about trouble surrounding him. It wasn't just his own trouble. It was all our troubles surrounded him. You couldn't count them. Multiply every person's troubles and pile them up and then surround Yeshua with it. That's how many there were. And then look at the sins. And no wonder he sweat great drops of blood in, in Gethsemane and Gethsemane. I mean, the sins are piling up so high because he's taking on the sins of humanity. They're so high, he can't see his way out. And so this is going to give us a backdrop, I believe, for at least the first alabaster woman, the, the, the one that we don't have a name for. And we know she was a sinner. The suggestion here is possibly, especially if we, if you were to go back and you were to read all of Psalm 40, you would definitely uh, see more correlations between this particular woman and her situation and Yeshua as salvation. Let's look at the passage right quick. This is one of them. This is going to be Luke 7.36. Luke 7, 36, and we'll read through 39. 
And we're going we're gonna to read the passage, and then we're going to look at the, the geographical location where we think it happened, where the text implies that this happened, because the geographical location is going to also play into this story. And if, that's going to help us sometimes, because um, we are never to condone sin. But when someone repents of sin, what are we supposed to do? What's our responsibility? If the sinner repents of sin, what is our responsibility? Do they ever get to live down their reputation? Or do we need to keep throwing it up to them? Yeshua is going to help us through this question. So it says, now one of the Pharisees was requesting to eat with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Reclined at the table. Remember that phrase. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, that's the trigger. She hears that he's reclining at the table. Okay, the woman in the city, she's a sinner. But when she learns that he's reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with the hair of her head and began kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. All right, let's back up a little bit. She, if we compare this back here to our psalm, troubles surround me, too many to count. My sins pile up so high, I can't see my way out. They outnumber the hairs on my head. I've lost all courage. What gave this woman the courage to approach Yeshua in such a bold way? Now, we can imagine she was not welcome in the Pharisee's house. We can tell that from the text. He didn't want a sinner in his house. Apparently, he didn't want a sinner in his house, repentant or not. She has a reputation. Because see, in the story, it says there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. But the Pharisee says she is a sinner, was a sinner, but he says is a sinner. We get the idea that possibly there have been, she has tried to take some steps in the direction of repentance, was a sinner. Maybe something has begun to change about her behavior, but the Pharisee says, she is a sinner. What sort of person this woman is who is touching him? In his mind, she's still a sinner. But what is she doing? Even if this were not the case, even if she has taken not one step up to this point in the direction of repentance, what should tell the Pharisee 
that she is repenting. She's not in the temple. It's not like she can snatch a dove or a pigeon or a lamb and and go make a sacrifice for her sin. She can't. She's in a, most likely they're in a city called Nain in the lower Galilee. We're talking about several days journey to be able to get to the temple. What can she do where she is? Well, she takes her hair. She weeps, apparently in repentance. And she is so repentant that there are enough tears coming out of her that she can wet his feet. That's a lot of crying. And then she takes the hair of her head and begins kissing his feet. Remember what we know about the footsteps of Messiah. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, announcing peace. Remember that she brought the olive branch of peace from King Messiah's palace. And now she begins wiping with these innumerable sins. Remember, their sins are more innumerable than the hairs of my head. She says, I have so many sins, just like the psalmist, more than the hair of my head. I can't count them. And she takes those sins and she begins touching them to the feet of Yeshua. She begins touching them to the gospel. She begins touching them to the feet of the one who can save her from those sins. When back here, what does the psalmist say? I've lost all courage. I'm surrounded. I'm buried under a pile so pile of sin so high, I can't see my way out. I wouldn't know where out was. I'm so surrounded, there's no way I could break through this wall of trouble. And the troubles come with the sins. They go together. One creates the other sometimes. One leads to the other sometimes. So at this point, she does the only thing she could possibly do. She's apparently not getting much love in her hometown here. And so she brings the most precious thing she has, this alabaster vial of perfume. And she begins wetting Yeshua's feet. She begins wetting salvation's feet with tears of repentance And then she, just like, you know, how you would place your hand on the head of the animal and confess your sins over that animal. What is she doing? She's taking all these sins from the hairs of her head and she's touching them to the feet of Yeshua, which in another account, when we look at the second alabaster woman, we're going to see the, the perfume goes on his head as well. And the Pharisee can't see any of this. All he sees is a sinner. And sometimes we look at a sinner and we say, well, we have have to absent ourselves from the sinner. And we do. We cannot partake of their sins. But when the sinner turns, when the sinner starts looking in a direction and saying, can I find my way out of here? Am I completely surrounded by trouble or is is there a gate out? Am I buried under this pile of sin or is there somebody out there who can help me climb out? This man wasn't going to help her. He said, she's a sinner. Well, yes, she's a sinner and she's trying to find her way out of her sin. And Yeshua says, hmm, I know a way out and I'm it. I'm it. He's not willing to cut off her escape. 
He's not willing to obstruct her repentance. So we need more clarification. Again, we're, we're, our working text is the Song of Songs. We're trying to decode with these symbols of the Song of Songs. Well, Song of Songs, chapter one, the opening, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is sweeter than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore, the young women love you. The young women love you. All right. So the bride is saying, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She's mentioning his love. It's sweeter than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. So the, again, the, remember the dove, it brings the olive branch. From the olive tree, we get the olive oil, which is the carrier oil for the nard, the spike nard, or the blend of oils that is in this alabaster vial. And so is it random that she brings a vial full of perfume, a fragrance? I don't think so. I think she knows this verse right here. I don't know how she knows it. I don't know if she heard it in the synagogue. I don't know if her daddy taught it to her when she was young. I don't know how she knew it. Now, we do know that it's traditional to read the Song of Songs at Passover. At Passover. So here's the question. She's seeking the love of Yeshua. She is seeking the fragrance of Yeshua. She is seeking his name. Your name is like purified oil. His name is Yeshua. It means salvation. What does she need right now? She needs salvation. She needs the purified oil of salvation. So she brings what she has, maybe to tell him, I know who you are. I know you're the only one who can kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. I know your name is the one by which I can be saved. I know you're the, the only one who has the fragrance of salvation. And I love you. And that's the question. Does he love her back? Of course he does. We know that the bridegroom in the Song of Songs loves his bride, even though it appears that his bride has gone down a wrong path. But let's let's get another word right. Let's Let's get another symbol right. How did Yeshua kiss her with the kisses of his mouth? In fact, how did he kiss the Pharisee? Because didn't he say the Pharisee, he says, you gave me no kiss. How did Yeshua kiss the Pharisee, even though the Pharisee would not kiss him? Well, here's the code. It's found in Proverbs 24, 26. It says, one who gives a right answer kisses the lips. One who gives a right answer kisses the lips. And what they're using there for right answer, that word is devar, and devar means word in Hebrew. One who gives a word kisses the lips. One who gives that word in season. One who gives the right word to the question. That is the one who kisses the lips. And so Yeshua is going to give her a devar. He's going to give her a right answer. That is his kiss to her. And he's also going to give a right answer or a devar to the Pharisee. And as a traveling rabbi, it was customary for the traveling rabbi, if he ate in the home of a host on Shabbat, the custom was that he would at the table give a divrei Torah, divrei Torah, 
Divrei comes from Devar, which means a word of Torah. So Yeshua is going to do that. So here, let's listen to his Devar. Let's listen to his kiss in this situation. And so Yeshua responded to the Pharisee and said, uh, Shimon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. The one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he canceled the debts of both. So which one of them will love him more? Shimon answered and said, I assume the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. You have judged correctly. Remember, it's a right answer. The kiss is the right answer. And so Yeshua pretty much had to pull the right answer out of him. And he's going to go on kissing right here. He's going, Yeshua is going to go on giving a right answer. Turning toward the woman, he said to Shimon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Remember the piled up sins? Couldn't even see her way out. Remember the troubles all around her? There was no way out. There was, there was not even a, a little daylight to get through the troubles. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. Remember, therefore, do the young women love him because of the fragrance of his oils, because of his purified name, Yeshua. But Yeshua says to Shimon, the one who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Smack. That's a kiss on the lips right there. That's an answer. That's a word. Your sins have been forgiven. That big pile that she couldn't see out of just disappeared right there. And then those who were reclining at the table with him, reclining at the table, that's the third time that's popped in there, began saying to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Here's the olive branch. There is a resurrection, young lady. The dove, the voice of the turtle dove has just been heard. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in the land. Isn't that what the song says? And this is what Yeshua, the one with dove's eyes, says to his dove. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Don't worry about those troubles. Don't worry about your sins. They are forgiven. That's good news, guys. That's why she was wetting his feet with her tears of repentance. She was seeking forgiveness, but didn't see a way out. And that's the hardest thing for someone who's buried under a pile of, of sins. So many times they'll just put it off, put it off, put it off. And the interest keeps growing on that debt. And they put it off and they put it off and they put it off. 
because they say, I don't have the strength right now. I don't think I can give up this right now. I don't think I can give up that right now. But when I think I can behave myself, I'll, I'll come back and I'll ask forgiveness. But what they find is, is those debts of sin, there's interest that go with it. And all of a sudden, not just the sins themselves, but the interest on the debt. It's piled so high, you realize you could make payments the rest of your life on that credit card and you would never pay it off. That's the condition this woman was in. She could pay the rest of her life, but without Yeshua, without the name like purified oil, she could never pay that debt. Well, you know what, Shimon? Neither could you. Neither could you. Though your sins were little and though you loved little, even those little sins could not be paid off. There is only one. And this woman recognizes that Yeshua is the one. So next week, I want to go in, why did Yeshua use money as an analogy? He's taking the Pharisee to Pharisee school. He's giving this kiss. He's giving this right answer to the Pharisee. He's teaching the Pharisee what the Pharisee already knows, what the Pharisee already believes, but has failed to apply. And in that sense, we're all Pharisees. We can know things. We can believe things. But when it comes to us, we don't always know how to apply it. And sometimes Yeshua has to take us to Pharisee school to teach us repentance from sin, to teach us forgiveness, to teach us with a name like purified oil. So in the next lesson, that's what we'll do. We'll, we'll look at why did Yeshua use money in this particular analogy to, to educate Shimon and to give this kiss, to give this word, this right answer. And why was it reclining at the table? And I'm going to give you a hint, give you something to think about between now and next week. Three times didn't we read that first it was because he was reclining at the table and then she hears that he's reclining at the table. And then those reclining at the table with him began saying to themselves. So it's reclining at the table appears in this text three times, at least three times is a number of resurrection, by the way. Well, in next week's lesson, we'll find out why resurrection was such a big deal in this passage, because we're going to put it in a geographic location where something spectacular happened. And why it's almost funny that Shimon said, if this man were a prophet. But remember, there's a time of year when we all recline at the table. The time of year when we all recline at the table. That's what's going to connect these alabaster women together. Not just the fact that it looks like this sinner woman somehow figured out that Yeshua was the bridegroom and went straight to him. She figured out he was the bridegroom. And again, it's traditional to read the Song of Songs at Passover, right? So not trying to tease you. Uh, we can only cover so much in one lesson, but I think I've given you enough hints down. I've given you some symbolism to work with, to put in your toolbox. I probably hopefully motivated you to go ahead and read the other accounts. There's going to be, you can read in uh, Matthew and you can read in John, the Gospel of John, about the other alabaster incident, which is this incident we read today took place toward the beginning of Yeshua's ministry. He's up in the Galilee at this point. He's in the lower Galilee, but he's in the Galilee. The second alabaster incident is going to take right before his crucifixion. And so we've got bookends. We've got twins here. We've got a pair of women 
this one is going to be a woman of ill repute, but the second alabaster woman is going to be Miriam, whom Yeshua is acquainted with, not a woman of ill repute. She's a woman of righteousness. She's one who chooses to sit and learn at the feet of Yeshua with the other disciples. So we'll start putting these things together next week. We've done a lot of groundwork last week and this week. But I think you can see this week how it's beginning to get interesting now, how the two stories, we can start to see them coming together so that we will see in a very deep way. I mean, guys, this is not kids stuff. This is grown-up stuff we're studying. I guess you realize that. Definitely not kids stuff. We come into the kingdom as a little child, but as we're looking at the Song of Songs and looking at the symbolism of these things and then seeing how Yeshua is pulling them together, then we realize if we don't have a good foundation in the word, then we're not going to recognize this stuff. We're not going to recognize these very significant things in the Gospels. What if you didn't know that the Song of Songs is read at Passover? What if you didn't make the connection with the hair and the sins? and the forgiveness of sins, and the fragrance, and the oil of the bridegroom in the Song of Songs. What if we didn't know those things? We could still understand it at a very basic level, but we couldn't understand it at this level. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.